You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 28. And as you're doing that, want to um, kind of remind you of what we were talking about last week. There was a couple of things that I wanted to finish up um, this week that we didn't get a chance to discuss last week. So I want to do that before we delve into um, new information today. We were talking last week about um, Jacob now branching away from his family, and we said that he ultimately has an experience with God here at what would eventually be known as Bethel. And so we were talking about the fact that as uh, parents of children, uh, we have a responsibility to lead our kids to make a personal choice to uh, make our God their God, essentially. That Jacob had been raised in an environment where Abraham had followed Yahweh and um, Isaac had followed Yahweh, and now he's at a point where he's got to make the decision, am I going to follow this God as well? Um, and so we talked a little bit last week just about the, the mandate to teach our children uh, to do such a thing, to embrace the faith that we've been uh, presenting to them since they were entrusted to us by God. We talked about the role of the parent last week, uh, that parents bear the primary responsibility for the spiritual instruction of their children uh, we talked about trusting in God's ultimate provision for them, their ultimate care, but that we're as parents entrusted to instill a message of obedience, but a, a message of obedience that flows from repentance and forgiveness, that we have to teach our kids that in, in the standards that we set, um, in the same way that God has uh, rules to obey, that we fall short of those standards, and it's God's grace, the gospel that's extended to us, um, that we have to pass on to our kids that through repentance and forgiveness, they ultimately can move towards obedience. Um, and then we talked about the the idea of family worship, um, the responsibility that we have as um, fathers or heads of our houses to lead our families in worship throughout the week, that this certainly should not be the only time that our families are exposed to God's word. Um, it should not be the only time that we are talking and discussing spiritual things, that that's to happen at home. And we took that uh, that example from Deuteronomy chapter 6, we said that while there's not a mandated schedule to follow, that there certainly are principles there that ought to be adopted into our families, that we have a responsibility to lead our families in times of worship and uh, Bible study, opportunities to reflect upon God outside of normal church activities. Um, and then we talked about the role of the church in the life of a child, that this, the, the church certainly comes alongside the parent and has a role and a responsibility to spiritually instruct them as well. And we talked about creating an environment here um, at Sovereign Hope where they can be instructed through words and examples. So we want to teach them, but we also want to surround them with people that can be examples, older Christians that they can follow. Uh, the church should also value them as an important member of the body of Christ. So we talked about that if we believe that they are Christians and we baptize them and have them participating in the Lord's Supper, that we certainly want to go all the way with it, that They've been entrusted with spiritual gifts, and they have opportunities in ways that, uh, while they are children, to invest in this church family that God has equipped them. And we certainly don't want to downplay or minimize or separate them so fully that we never get to really appreciate them, right? I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes we can come and, and really never see the kids that are here, right? We trip over them, we stumble over them as they're running around after church, but how often do we really stop and pause and and talk to them and interact with them, right? If they're believers, and we've got several kids that have, have professed publicly to be a follower of Jesus, we've baptized them here at our church. How often do we stop and interact with them and treat them as a valued member of the body of Christ? We've got some kids that are in that weird stage where, you know, it's easy, the kids that are in the nursery, like everybody wants to hold them and, and, and cuddle with them and, and show love and value to them. And then you've got kids that transition into the middle school teenage years, and we've got uh, godly men and women in our church that are saying, hey, I want to disciple them. I want to spend time with them. I want to take them places outside of church. I want to have them over to my house and do disciple nows. And so they enter into this phase in middle school and high school where it's, yeah, everybody wants to be around me again. But then there's that weird elementary phase where you're too old to be held by adults and you're not old enough to take them fishing and, and some of the things that are hobbies and spend time and in investing in them. And if we're not careful, I think our kids in the elementary age get lost, especially in a church our size where we don't have the programs that some of the other churches offer. And so I want to I make sure that we're not guilty of devaluing that age group. 
because as believers in Christ, they have value. Um, and they have uh, spiritual benefits that have been given to them, Ephesians 1. Um, and I think they've also been given gifts that, that can serve our church family as well. Um, so we talked about creating an environment where our kids are valued uh, as important members of the body of Christ. And then we talked about modeling for them appropriate worship uh, through the proclamation of the word and administering the ordinances. Um, just to kind of cover some of the things that we didn't get to talk about last week. Um, where kids should be on a Sunday morning and, and why we've kind of structured it here at our church for them to be with us in the sermon. And I, and I shared this, or I wanted to share this last week because we've changed some of the ways that we're doing some of the things here, even through the way that we present notes to help engage our kids. And I want you to be familiar with why we're doing that. Where kids should be on a Sunday morning. Um, I spent some time calling around to some of the churches that I respect greatly uh, from a theological standpoint. These are churches that I call to get wisdom and insight when, um, when I'm studying a passage. Um, but we've also sought them for advice on um, church structure and church documents and church government. Um, and, and what I've found is that um, there's variance there, but some of the churches that I called, um, one here in Noonan, um, third, once you're in third grade, you start sitting in the service. Uh, John Piper's church, once you're four years old, you start sitting in the service. Uh, Four Corners Church um, in Noonan, uh, fourth and fifth graders um, start sitting in the service basically every other week. And the weeks that they're not in the service, they are serving in the kids' ministry and kind of working as a, an older mentor for some of the younger kids. So it's kind of a, a gap bridger for them. They're, they're starting to work their way into the service. Uh, Faith Bible Church, which we've had some people visit from um, over here in Sharps, Sharpsburg, when you're six years old, you start sitting in the service. Uh, Cross Point Community Church, which is in Peachtree City, um, they start with sixth grade and up being in the church service. The church that I came from in Virginia, third graders are in the service. John MacArthur's church, four-year-olds and up are in the service. Um, and then Ecclesia, where Ryan pastors, seven-year-olds and up are in the service. So not consistent as far as what age, but certainly consistency in the idea of younger versus older in comparison to some of the other churches in the area where, you know, I've shared with you, Tyson and I are interacting with kids in our middle school that are going to churches where they will not sit in an adult service until they're in college. Um, that Sunday mornings are structured to where middle school and high school stay separated from the adult service. They have their own youth group services. So many churches have gone away from Wednesday night services so that Wednesday night church youth group model has been adopted on Sundays now to compensate for that. And so um, we're seeing kids that, that will never sit in an adult service until uh, later on in life. Um, some of the reasons that I feel like it's important to have, and I'm not going to advocate for a certain age group this morning because some of what we do is uh, mandated by church space more than theology to some degree. Um, but I am going to advocate that I do believe kids younger versus older should be sitting in the service. Uh, and I think there's some important reasons why. First of all, I think it's dangerous if, if we believe that um, kids' experience at church should always be driven by a fun concept. Uh, I think that's dangerous. I don't have fun here on Sunday morning. Like, I wouldn't describe my experience coming on a Sunday morning as fun. It's engaging, it's meaningful, um, would be some of the words that I may would choose to use. Fun's not one of them. I don't, I don't come here and say, well, that was a fun day. Now, there's times when I have fun with my church family, right, outside of the Sunday morning gathering. Uh, even going to lunch can be fun after church. But as far as what takes place here on a Sunday morning, I don't consider it to be described as fun for me. And I think some of the dangers there in creating a fun environment, and just from personal experience growing up, I remember when we first joined Fayette Baptist Tabernacle, my parents and I were visiting churches, and they said, which church do you think we should go to? And I said, Fayette Baptist Tabernacle, why? Because they play kickball. They play kickball during the service, and it became known as the kickball church. Um, and, and I grew up there through ninth grade, um, and then we transitioned to Woolsey and went there until I went off to college. Um, what's interesting to me is that if you were to ask Jesse, Topi, Cortland, those guys are what, 20, how old are you guys? 23. Um, some of these, Dan, Tyson, some of these guys that are, that are in their mid-20s, if I were to ask them what, 
did I teach? What did Ryan teach at main event at Mount Gilead? They could rattle off series and, and, and topics and, and things that were taught in youth group. I can't tell you one thing that we learned in youth group at Fayette Baptist Tabernacle or at Woolsey. I, 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 I've been trying to think. I can't think of one series that we went through. I went to Disciple Nows. I can't tell you anything that we talked about at those Disciples Nows, the, the Disciple Nows. Nothing. And part of the reason for that is that our, our youth groups were driven towards fun. They were driven towards fun. And we had a lot of fun, and there were always Bible lessons. But I think oftentimes there was more thought given towards the fun activities that were going to go after the lesson versus the lesson. I remember sitting at Fayette Baptist Tabernacle and thinking, when will he quit talking so we can go play basketball? For me, it was completely driven by everything else that was going to happen outside of the lesson. And one of the first things that I think Ryan really started doing at Mount Gilead, and then I continued the, the, the idea, was we really took away a lot of the, the, the games and the activities that were a part of the service, and we really boiled it down to we're going to sing and worship, and we're going to study the Word. Um, and, and kids started to grow. Um, kids started to grow, and I think there even got to a point where there was um, an understanding that, that there should always be depth in the teaching of God's Word. Um, and there were times even when they felt like some of the kids coming out of the youth group felt like Sunday morning's not as deep as what we're getting on a Wednesday night. And I don't say that to say that I was doing a better job than somebody else or Ryan was doing a better job than somebody else. I say that to say that sometimes we think that kids can't handle the depths of Scripture. And I've certainly seen that uh, with the group of kids that have come and grown up and become important members of our church. Um, that kids can understand the depths of Scripture at sometimes a more earlier age than we think. Um, but in looking at some of the churches that I trust, uh, they're, they're modeling a, a similar structure for what we have here at Sovereign Hope. Um, I think that a lot can be learned by watching, even if everything isn't understood. So I certainly don't think that in having kids in our service that they should be able to understand everything, nor do I think they will. Um, but I think much can be learned by watching parents and others um, in the worship service. Uh, I think much can be learned through that avenue. Uh, and then um, another thought that I had is that uh, to be a complete body and to really show value, I think we have to all be together some of the time, right? I think we all have to be together some of the times. I don't think that we should bring our kids to man-up breakfasts. Um, I don't know that our kids can fully participate in some of the C-group discussions that we have. Um, but I do think that there's value in us all being together some of the time. But in order for that to really be helpful for our kids. So I'm not advocating that I think that our kids should be forced to come and not be able to participate. I think that we have to structure our Sundays to where it's engaging for everybody that sits in here. And I think I said it last week that if I'm going to ask families to be in here, then we need to be faithful to teach to our families. And that starts with Tyson and the songs and the way that he handles worship to the way that I teach, that we're, we're seeking to engage everybody in our worship services. I think there's some spiritual, uh, scriptural precedent for it as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, I'll give you three passages that at least allude to the fact that children at a young age were expected to grasp um, God's word in the same way adults were. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, Uh, yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 9. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in your year of release at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Okay, so they're just going to read the Old Testament law. Like some of the books that are on the top ten list of most boring books to try to read and study, right? Like the ones that are... Uh, killers for those trying to read through the book of the Bible, read through the Bible in a year. Okay, they're going to just read those books out loud, and look what look what it says. Um, Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. As long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Now, do I think the kids of Israel were able to just sit and hear the, the law read and understand it? Probably not. 
But there was at least value there that God was communicating. I'm going to give you as dads and moms something to work with when it's over. You know, like they're going to sit and listen to the law being read. And there was probably a lot of follow-up from the parents instructing the kids about what they had heard. Hey, what did you not understand? What did you understand? Here's what you needed to have understood. Um, If you go over to... Uh, the Gospels, there's uh, a couple of passages where Jesus is teaching large groups of people and he's long-winded and meals are being skipped and now it's lunchtime and, and the food needs to be dispersed, right? And it talks about food being dispersed to the men and the women and the children. That they were, they were there accompanying their parents to hear Jesus just talking and, and preaching um, to the parents. And then maybe one that's... Uh, supported from the the letters of the new testament the passage that we were looking at some last week ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 children obey your parents in the lord for this is right um thinking in terms of how the early church was structured paul and others were writing letters to churches right and then the the model was for somebody in the church when that letter came it was to read it audibly to the church and so the implication here is that as Paul writes Ephesians, he's communicating some important things to the children with the expectation that they would have been present to hear it, okay? Um, now, that's not to say that things don't change, time doesn't change. Um, I do think that our kids are at a disadvantage today, more so than maybe kids in years past where our kids are being driven by entertainment, they're being driven by fun experiences, um, School's becoming more fun with more technology being included in the classrooms. Um, the days of sitting in front of a boring, dusty book and having to read uh, chapter after chapter are, are going away. Um, so I don't want to discount the fact that our kids are growing up in a different type of learning environment, and that has to be considered as we talk about teaching them and them learning here in church. Um, but just some things to consider, things that, that are kind of um, affecting me in the way that we structure things here um, at our church. It's, it's an ongoing discussion. It's certainly not this is how it's going to be for sure. Um, but just wanting to give you some insight. I think there's value for our kids being in here, certainly right now because of our spatial limitations. Um, but I think we can make it more valuable, and that's where we're kind of heading uh, with some of the transition that we saw last week and how I even give notes on a Sunday morning. So as we get into the, the stuff today, um, we're going to see, again, some kids-directed notes. And so hopefully our kids that were in the kids' class got the notes, um, and I want them following along and, and trying to take some things away from um, our discussion today. All right, summary sentence as we get into uh, Genesis chapter 28. We've got two summary sentences, um, one for our adults and one for our kids. Each generation must understand the goodness of God through his revealed promises of protection and blessing if they are to personally choose to worship him with their lives. Each generation must understand the goodness of God through his revealed promises of protection and blessing if they are to personally choose to worship him with their lives. And as you're writing that down for our kids, as you grow, your parents and church want you to see that God takes care of us. And we should follow him because he is good. That's what we see here in Genesis chapter 28. And as you're writing, I'm going to read our text for us this morning. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar. Poured oil on the top of it. 
He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. All right, so we have Jacob kind of working through his faith here. Um, And so just to kind of summarize what we just talked about there. Jacob leaves his home. He's going to his family that lives lives a long way away. One of the nights on his journey, he falls asleep. He seems to be like me where he can sleep just about anywhere. He's using a, a rock for a pillow and, and finds himself in a sleep that results in a dream. And not just any dream, but a divine dream. A divine dream where he sees God. He sees angels. He sees access to heaven. Okay, And then it's after that dream, he wakes up. And, and like some of us, there's some emotions that are flowing after, after a dream that just kind of freaks you out a little bit. And so there's some fear. Uh, there's some excitement. There's some awe. And there's some application where, where Jacob decides to do some things as a result of this divine dream. And so we'll talk a little bit about that in our application. Um, but again, our summary sentence for today, what I want you to understand is that each generation, Jacob being the generation coming after Abraham and Isaac, each generation must understand the goodness of God. And God reveals himself that way, right? That he's going to protect us and bless us. And that's why we personally choose to worship him with our lives. All right, so uh, we want our kids to grow up. We want them to be exposed to our faith. We want to, to help them see that God has revealed himself as a good God, a God that's worth trusting, a God that is worth following, okay? Jacob's working through that, and he's making the statement here, if God comes through, if God shows himself to be this type of God, then I will certainly invest everything in him. All right, some background information for you as we jump into the text. First of all, Jacob's about to start a 500-mile journey to Haran. Um, and then in our kids' notes, um, but this is also for our adults, it took about three days for Jacob to get to Bethel. So he's already been walking for three days when he finally lays down and has this dream. So again, he's probably slept at least once, if not twice before, on his journey. All right, it took about three days for Jacob to get to Bethel. Um, Abraham, uh, interestingly enough, built an altar at Bethel Several years, many years before Jacob would actually sleep here, back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, when Abraham leads his family away from Haran, Jacob's kind of on the same trek, the same path, the same route as what Abraham and Sarah were on. And we're told in Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, that, that Abraham built an altar in this same area. Some commentators wanted to speculate that Jacob took a rock from the altar and actually laid his head upon it. There's no textual evidence for that cool if it did happen that way, uh, but more than likely not. Um, They're just in the same general area. Um, When Abraham's worshiping God, offering an altar, Jacob's worshiping God when he builds the pillar after his dream. All right? Um, Next in our notes, God reveals himself as good through unconditional promises of protection and provision. God reveals himself as good through unconditional promises of protection and provision. Again, this is, this is Jacob moving from watching his parents worship God to now embracing this God as his own personal God. Okay, The, the God of his parents is now becoming his personal God, and that's true for all of our kids. Uh, we're raising our kids in Christian homes. We're talking to them about God uh, we even had a conversation yesterday with, with AJ. Um, we were talking about, uh, I think the Inside Out movie. Um, and we were talking about emotions that he was exhibiting. And I was asking him, like, who's, who's running your control center right now? And, and he said, I guess Jesus. Um, which was like, man, I hope that's true really soon. Um, but, you know, he's, he's hearing us talk. He's hearing us talk in spiritual terms, and he's connecting that a little bit uh, with himself. And, and we certainly want to move our kids to where they're embracing the faith that we're trying to teach them about, right? Um, but here, God steps in and reveals himself uniquely to Jacob. And he does so in a way where he wants Jacob to see himself as a good God um, with promises of protection and provision. I put in my notes, Jacob needs to personally experience the favor and validation of God, absent from the faith of his parents. He needs to see that these blessings are truly his, that the God of Abraham and Isaac can now become the God of Jacob as well. 
Okay, so that's where we see God stepping in, kind of disrupting Jacob's evening and helps him to see that the God of your parents can become the personal God of you. Um, I think too often times kids live in the shadow of their parents' faith and then when they get old enough to get out, they abandon it. Um, and, and we certainly want to be intentional with, it, with our kids as parents here at this church that we are calling them to embrace the same faith that we've embraced, uh, to do so personally and to see it to see God as a God who, uh, who is good and makes promises of protection and provision because that's what becomes the hook for Jacob, right? That's what hooks Jacob in. He says, if you're going to be a good God, a God that provides and leads and protects me, then I'm certainly going to abandon my life for him. I'm certainly going to abandon my life for that type of God. So God reveals himself in this way. We must certainly present this type of God to our children. In your notes, again, God reveals himself good, unconditional promises of protection and provision. First of all, God's accessible presence is initiated by him. That's what we see, first of all, in this dream. God's accessible presence is initiated by him. Because that's one of the themes here of this dream is that God is accessible. That man can access God. Now, there's going to be conditions there, right? There's going to be parameters put in place that allow man to access God. But what we're being exposed to, really for the first time in the text, since we saw Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden, is that access to God, once again, is available. That's communicated through this ladder that extends from heaven to earth, and we see the angels coming up and going down uh, upon it. God's accessible presence is initiated by God. This is, and I think I heard this group over here talking about it, this is kind of the reverse order of the Tower of Babel, right? Man was trying to build some type of structure to get to God. Here, Jacob is exposed to a heavenly structure that gives access to God. But it's coming from heaven down to earth versus earth up to heaven. God is extending access from heaven down. Um, You may have seen illustrations and pictures of what this might look like. The word here for ladder that's translated ladder, um, it's really only used here this one time in Scripture, so we can't even reference other places in Scripture to get a great understanding of the word. Um, it could be seen as a ladder like we understand a ladder with rungs, or it could also be seen as a staircase similar to a ziggurat type structure. For those of you that are history buffs, you'll remember um, in, uh, in the Middle East, uh, early forms of worship, they would build these giant pyramid type structures that had staircases that went all the way to the top. And the goal was basically to, to build high structures, high places of worship, and you would ascend up. Uh, from a from just a, a personal type experience, like I'm coming up to worship God. Um, and so it may have been that he saw something very similar to what he was familiar with. Here are the secular versions of how to access God, and now here's the true one way to access God. It doesn't really matter what type of structure it is. The important aspect here is that we're seeing accessibility to God being communicated through this dream. Um, We're also understanding here that heaven is a real place, and again, that God is accessible. So for our kids, this dream that Jacob has about a ladder and about angels and about God, it's about about showing us that we can be friends with God, that he's accessible, that that there's access to come back to him, to have a relationship with him. Okay, so for our adults, for our kids, what I want you to walk away from initially from seeing this dream that Jacob has is that while we're born into sin— we're born enemies of God, that there is accessibility to come back to him. All right, We see this communicated to Jacob through this ladder structure, that we can come back to God. Secondly, um, God's protection is represented through a host of spiritual forces. The angels play a role in this dream, and I think they play a role where they represent God's constant care of his own. Jacob gets a glimpse of spiritual forces at work that we're unable to see. It's a reminder of the spiritual realities at work around us. Right? He has this dream, he lays down, and there's a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. God blesses Jacob, and it's almost as though his, his uh, veil uh, is removed from his eyes to where now he can see all of reality versus just what we understand to be physical reality. He can see the spiritual realm. And all of a sudden, he begins to see angels coming and going from heaven to earth. 
Uh, and the picture here is that, that angels are used by God to carry out his will upon the earth. And then they return and get further instructions. We see this time and again in scripture, right? We see angels coming and delivering messages. We see uh, the sons of God being gathered before God at times in the book of Job. Um, so we see this accessibility that angels are coming and going from heaven to earth. We talk more about demons probably than we do angels, right? We talk more about Satan and demons and temptation and um, them trying to wreck faith and uh, trying to deceive nations. And certainly, I don't think any of us would minimize the presence of demons and the active role that demons play on this earth. Ephesians testifies to that, right? That we put on the armor of God because we war against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. But thanks be to God that uh, that God enlists uh, agents of light as well upon this earth to to fight for us. Um, and, and I think I heard at least one of the groups talking about the fact, we want to be careful here. We don't want to say that the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, it would be inadequate without these agents, right? Like we don't want to elevate angels to the point that we start praying to angels or entrusting ourselves to angels, but I think for those of us that maybe have a hard time wrapping our minds around God's omnipresence and how God can be active in your life and my life at the same time, maybe angels help bridge the gap a little bit for us in that we can see that God is using created beings that serve him to carry out his plans upon the earth. Uh, and angels are utilized that way. And we're going to look in a minute at some of the texts that uh, lend itself to that type of understanding. But Jacob gets a glimpse and a reminder, and I, and I want us to pause and just be reminded as well today that when we step out and we face this week, there are principalities and powers that wage war against us. But there are also angels that are there fighting for us as well. Um, and God uses them uh, to protect us. Jacob gets that reminder here. Um, it's also a, a reminder to us that heaven is concerned rather than detached from the happenings on earth, right? Like this helps debunk any type of thought or theology that would say God created things and then God stepped away and is just allowing things to play out, right? That God is very active and intentional by being a part of what's happening here on this earth. There's a, there's a ladder here pictured where angels are coming and going and carrying out his plans. Um, we've said angels have access to both heaven and earth. They're God's agents for carrying out his plans. Some of the ways that we've seen angels in Genesis so far, they guard the tree of life. We talked about them visiting Abraham and then visiting Lot. That's kind of our minimal exposure to angels so far in the book of Genesis. But already in those accounts, we can see them guarding, communicating, rescuing, and protecting. There's some other passages uh, in Scripture that I think also lend itself to understanding angels and the role they play in the life of a believer. In Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. I think I heard one group referencing uh, this passage as well. Talking about Jesus being better than angels, um, that he's superior to angels, uh, but it does talk about the role that angels play in verse 14. It says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? All right, that's us. That's us. That, that's us. We're the ones that inherit salvation, and God uses angels Maybe in ways that we don't fully understand, but he certainly uses angels as ministering servants, ministering agents to help carry out his plan. Okay? God references them that way in Hebrews chapter 1. In Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, verse 10, it says, Rejoice with me, uh, for I found the coin that I lost. Uh, this is in the context of the parable of the lost items, the prodigal son, the lost coin, the lost sheep. Verse 10 says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So angels serve as ministering spirits, but they're also salvation celebrators in heaven. They're, they're seen as, as beings who look curiously at the gospel. There's other passages that talk about them looking into the mysteries of the gospel and wanting to understand God's love for sinful man. And, and here Jesus is talking about the fact that when believers come to Christ, that there's celebration in heaven generated by the angels. As they're seeing this play out, they're seeing, they're seeing it happen and they're excited and they're giving glory to God for the salvation that he's accomplishing. Psalm chapter 34 verse 7 and other passages 
another passage dealing with angels. Psalm chapter 34. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Um, maybe talking about Christ here, maybe talking about a specific angel. Again, there's some ambiguity there in the Old Testament um, at times. In Psalm chapter 91, Psalm chapter 91, uh, verse 11. If you read through um, verses 1 through 10, talking about God being our refuge and um, our fortress that we can trust in. And then in verse 11, to kind of back up some of what there's, what's being claimed there, um, it says in verse 11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Some intentionality there for how God uses angels. And then in Acts chapter 12, verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Right? If, if this were to occur, um, if this were to occur in today's day and age, we would simply say that God delivered. Peter had some unique insight here to see that this was tied to an angel and not just simply God, but God using an angel. We don't always have the ability to say that confidently, but it does serve as a reminder that angels are used by God as ministering servants to guard and to guide us as believers. Um, again, not wanting to give too much uh, credit to them, but just wanting to see that God is, is at play around us and that God is using his other created beings that dwell in heaven for his purposes here on this earth. Jacob gets a glimpse of that in Genesis chapter 28. And again, despite what the Precious Moments Company has given us, I think we should see and be encouraged by angels. They're not wimpy beings. They are mighty warriors in Scripture. And we should certainly be encouraged as we read about them in Scripture. And I think we can be encouraged and even talking about them uh, in a spiritual context within our homes, that God does use angels to guard and guide and protect us. So for our kids, God uses angels to help protect us. We learn that here in this passage, um, that they play a role in God's plans. They're going to play a role in God's plans with Jacob. As God makes these promises, I think the connection for Jacob is that part of the way he carries out these promises to care for Jacob and to protect him and to provide for him are through the angels that he sees coming and going from the ladder. Number three. God's promises are applied based on our identity with Christ rather than personal performance. God's promises are applied based on our identity with Christ rather than personal performance. It's worth remembering here that Jacob hasn't done anything to warrant God's favor. And Jacob's not praying to God right now for him to do something unique in his life. Jacob's a schemer. He's discontent, he's lied, he's grasped for things, and he's sleeping right now when God comes to him. Uh, I, I think we need to understand, I think our kids need to understand, that God's promises and God's salvation and God working in our lives is not because we deserve it. It's not because we've earned it. That it's simply based on what Christ has done for us versus anything that we've done, Right? God doesn't come to Jacob here and give him a list of things that he has to do to get these promises, right? Oftentimes we tell our kids, you have to do this, this, and this, and then I will reward you with this. That's not what happens here. God comes bringing unconditional promises to Jacob as his chosen son, not if Jacob does certain things. Now, I'm calling this our identity with Christ for a specific reason that's not found in this text, but found in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, Jesus is assembling his uh, world changers uh, in the form of disciples. Um, and he calls upon uh, a man named Nathaniel. Uh, Nathaniel, who was a skeptic at first. It says in verse 47 of John chapter 1, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? If you back up a little bit, you find that Nathaniel was kind of doing his own thing. And there's, uh, there's this, um, this excitement about Jesus. And so he has individuals coming to him and telling him, hey, we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel's skeptical, right? And so he, he eventually is coerced into coming. Nathaniel says, how do you even know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, 
When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So Nathanael's kind of realizing that, that Jesus has kind of an omnipresence type power because he can see where Nathanael was. He can see what Nathanael was doing. And there's no way he would have access to that information. So he's, he's, he's excited. He says, yeah, maybe you are the son of God. Maybe you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Lest we really think that there's a, a invisible ladder somewhere that runs from heaven to earth and that's where the angels are coming and going. Jesus lets us know that that thing that happened in the Old Testament, and they would have been familiar because they would have been raised in Jewish homes. They would have been exposed to these stories. They would have known exactly what he was talking about. Jesus says, the latter in the story is me. I'm the one that gives access to the Father. And we see that unfold in the New Testament. The idea of Jesus being the mediator in Second Timothy or 1 Timothy 2.5, right? Jesus is the mediator in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 19 through 20. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, this is the message that as adults and children we need to embrace is that God has given access to himself through the work of Jesus Christ, right? As, as, as adults and kids, if we were growing up in the Old Testament, we would have come to worship on a Saturday. We would have tried to approach the tabernacle or the temple depending on where we were living, what time frame we were living. We would have come and we would have been stopped and not been allowed to go any further, right? It wouldn't have been a question as to, should I be in that room or not be in that room? It would have been, you're not allowed in that room. Adult or kid, there's one person allowed in that room, and that's the high priest. And nobody else can go in there. This veil is closed shut, and it lets you know that nobody passes, that you're not good enough to come in here, that your sins prohibit you from entering the holy of holies. And then that all changes in the New Testament, right? Jesus comes and he's perfect and he's the perfect lamb and he dies on the cross and miraculously as he's hanging on the cross and dying for our sins, the veil is ripped in two and there's now access, full access for women, children, men, husbands, daddies, wives. Everybody can come in now. Why? Because Jesus is the great ladder. He's the great staircase. He's the one that gives access to God. Whereas before it was previously prohibited. You couldn't come because you were sinful. Get out of the garden. You can't stay here and eat of the tree of life. You're sinful. And then all of that's starting to change now. There were promises in the Old Testament that it would change, but the reality hadn't come yet. Then Jesus comes and heaven is opened wide. It's opened wide and we can now approach in confidence because Christ has shed his blood and we're sprinkled clean, right? Our consciences are now clear. So as adults and children, we can come to God and we can come confidently despite the fact that we're screw-ups and we're sinful and we're rebellious and our attitudes still need to be changed. We can come to Jesus. We can come to God the Father because of what Christ has done. Jesus tells Nathaniel, you think it's cool that I can see where you're sitting? Wait till you really grasp the fact that you have access to God, that you can be friends with God once again because what I'm going to accomplish by the end of my earthly life. He's the true gap bridger between God and man. For our kids, the ladder of Jacob's dream represents Jesus. Jesus is that great gap bridger for us. And as God begins to communicate to Jacob through this picture here, he's making national promises of land and offspring, right? It's the same wordage given to Abraham. He's passing this on to Jacob now as the inheritor of these promises. Right? There's probably some application there as, 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 as moms and dads that we pass to our kids the same promises that we're clinging to, that they have these promises available to them as well. Right? We want to be faithful to teach them about the promises that we love so much because these are the same promises given to Abraham. Right Back in Genesis chapter 28, um, <clears throat> I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. 
in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All right, he's promising him land and offspring, and he's promising him that he'll be a blessing to all the earth. We understand that to be Jesus as we get better, further revelation in the New Testament. National promises. Then there's some personal promises given to, to Jacob as well, right? God's protection and provision that God is going to be with him, going back to that idea of omnipresence, but specifically for a believer, very special, interactive presence by God in all of our circumstances. Right? He goes on to say, Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. At this time, there was a concept that when you left your land, you left your God behind as well. God's kind of debunking that, that false belief that as you go 500 miles away, I'm going with you, and wherever you go, I'm going to go with you, right? Because Jacob's going to leave the land again and have to go to Egypt for a while. God says, I go with you wherever you go. I'm going to fulfill these promises no matter what. Personal promises given to Jacob here. God says, regardless of future circumstances, I'm going to lead you, guide you, and protect you. That definition I gave you back when we were talking about omnipresence, all of God is always with us in every place and at all times to work good for us. Alan P. Ross, one of the commentators that I use, says the promise of divine protection does not exclude conflict and tension, but it does guarantee an outcome of good for participants of God's covenant. Right, that's the promise that our kids need to hear because as adults we need to grasp it every single day that God is good to his children. And it doesn't mean that everything that happens to us is good. It means that everything will turn out for good. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's maybe even a far better blessing, um, that nothing bad can happen to us, that God doesn't manipulate and change and use for good purposes in our life. Everything, as a child of God, changes because of that promise. So God presents this to him, says, I want to be your God. Uh, God of Abraham and Isaac now becomes the God of Jacob. And Jacob awakes from his dream, it says, in verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Man responds to God's goodness with worship and commitment. Man responds to God's goodness with worship and commitment. This is the appropriate response to God's goodness, right? God gives a dream and basically says, Jacob, You've heard about me from your dad. You've heard about me from your granddad. But let me help you understand how awesome I am and what I'm capable of doing for you. And Jacob gets a glimpse of that, and he responds with worship and commitment. Starts by introducing us to the fact that Jacob responds with amazement and fear. All right, he awakes from his sleep, and he's amazed at what he's seen, and he's a little bit fearful of what he's seen as well. For our kids, how did Jacob feel? He was a little afraid, but in a good way. In a good way. There should be a healthy fear that all of us have, whether we're an adult or a child. All of us should have a healthy fear of God. And, and Jacob, I think, leaves this dream realizing that something has to be done now. Like, I have to respond to this. I can't just walk away and be a hearer of this dream only and not a doer. Um, there's a healthy fear attached to how Jacob feels about this. And God informs us and reminds us sometimes of who he is in order to incite appropriate responses. I think God steps in here and kind of jerks Jacob by the, uh, by the chain and, and, and alerts him once again to his goodness and his greatness. That if Jacob has been hearing it from his dad and disregarding it, now's the time to really do something with it. Now's the time to really respond to all the things that he's been taught as a child. Secondly, Jacob responds with outward worship. He builds a memorial to remember the event. Jacob responds with outward worship. It says, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. He responds with outward worship. For our kids, he worshiped God. He's fearful, he's amazed, but he's worshiping God appropriately um, as best he knows how at this point, um, by building this memorial to remember the event. And then lastly, Jacob responds with plans of action. 
He plans to submit in obedience and to tithe in gratitude, right? It says that uh, if God ends up being what he's saying he is, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. He plans to submit to, a, to God in obedience. He plans to tithe in gratitude for our kids. He starts obeying God. And this is not too dissimilar from Zacchaeus's response, right? Zacchaeus, who was a lover of money, gets saved. <coughs> and then what's his response? Starts giving money away, right? Like he wants to reconcile with people that he's stolen from, gives them more than what he had taken from them. His immediate uh, response of gratitude to what Jesus does in his life is to start giving stuff away. It's true of the early church in the book of Acts, right? As they came and got saved, they're giving their stuff away. They're sharing their stuff. Seems like always in Scripture, giving and generosity is attached to true conversion. And Jacob says, I'll give you a tenth of what you blessed me with, not because he thinks that he needs it, but as an act of gratitude, an act of worship, he plans to give back to God. And this is a, a great teaching tool for us as we're <coughs> raising our kids, as our kids start to get jobs, right? We've got some that uh, are in our church now that are starting to, to work for the very first time. Um, as moms and dads, we need to teach. We need to teach our kids that part of the ways that we respond with gratitude and worship to God is to give our money away, not just to give it to the church, right? It's not an appeal for you to increase the giving here at Sovereign Hope, but for you to instill in your kids a creative mindset. And some of you are great with generosity. Some of you have a gift of generosity. Um, and so some of you are going to be able to teach this maybe better than others, and some of us maybe need to have a co-op situation where we can bring our kids to your house and let you teach them about generosity because we're still learning how to be generous, right? But we should instill this lesson in our kids that part of the ways that we submit to God is we demonstrate generosity with the stuff that he blesses us with. It's a way that we keep connected to the idea that the reason we have anything is because of his goodness, right? What a great way for us to teach our kids that God is good and he protects and he provides for his children by us constantly acknowledging the source of everything that we enjoy as a family. Jacob says, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to give as a response of gratitude. Some application for us and we'll wrap up today. First of all, believe. Talk about some things that we should believe from this passage. First of all, we should believe that we have received a better revelation of God's good promises than Jacob giving us greater encouragement. What do I mean by that? We've received a better revelation of God's good promises than Jacob, giving us greater encouragement. It would be easy to look back to this passage, and I think it would be real easy uh, for those that are younger in our church to look back to this passage and say, man, Jacob had a sweet setup. He got a vision, a dream from God, and God talked to him directly. How awesome is that? I wish I could be like Jacob. I wish I could have a, a unique dream that comes to me. But the picture we get in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. It goes on to describe the awesomeness of Jesus I think it's important for us as, as adults and, and to pass on to our children that what we have in the New Testament far exceeds any of the experiences in the Old Testament, right? I'm not going to discount that there may be times when God reveals himself in dreams today. I, I hear too many stories that are God-honoring to just say, no, that can't be true, right? I, I, I've heard of things I've, um, to the point that I, I can't just discount it and say that never happens. I can certainly tell you that you should not expect it to happen, right? If we're living our life in such a way that we're waiting on God to give us visions and dreams before we do things, we're going to be waiting for a long time. Because I do think if it still does happen, it is minimal. Why? Because Jesus is better than any dream that we could have, right? This is how God communicates. Communicates through Jesus, who is the word. He's given us the Bible. Um, he's given us the words of Christ. That's the revelation we need, right? It's, it's sufficient for all life and godliness. So, um, you know, it's important for us to elevate the value of God's word to our kids to where dreams pale in comparison. Yeah, it's great that he got a dream, but he couldn't sit down and read 66 books of God's revelation. He had a, a minimal amount of revelation that he was clinging to. So many more promises that we get today. Um, for our kids, believe that God communicates with people today through Jesus. Number two, believe God is relentless in carrying out the promises that he makes. 
for our kids, believe that God always keeps his promises. Um, I love the wordage used here in Genesis chapter 28. To me, it, it carries more weight than just God keeps promises. Um, it says... Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It's this idea of relentlessness by, relentlessness by God to carry out his promises. I think you get a little bit of that in Philippians 1 verse 6 where it says when God starts a work in you, he finishes the work. It's not that God just steps back and lets it play out, right? You get this picture that God's right there in the middle of it, mixing it up and, and making it happen, that he's very involved in our lives. He says, Jacob, I'm going to stay with you and carry you through to the end. And that's not unique to Jacob. That's true for all of us that are believers. He stays with us. He carries us through. He starts the work. He finishes the work. Number three, believe God's presence with us is a promise to be reminded of each day. For our kids, believe that God is always with us. Don't discount how great of a promise this is. Um, we won't take time to read all these passages, but um, Deuteronomy 31, 6 through 8, uh, talks about God not forsaking his people. Joshua 1, 5, God talks to Joshua and says, In the way I was with Moses, I'll be with you. I will not forsake you. 1 Samuel 12, 22, Jonathan is talking to David and talking about how God doesn't forsake his children. First uh, Chronicles twenty eight twenty. I can't remember the context of that one off the top of my head, but it talks about God not forsaking his people. Matthew twenty eight twenty, Great Commission. Jesus says, "Go make disciples. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm going to stay with you." Hebrews thirteen five. Don't love money. Be content. Why? Because. I am always with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Last application point. Respond. Does your life portray submission and gratitude towards the promises made to you? Does your life portray submission and gratitude towards the promises made to you? Jacob hears the promises of God and says, okay, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to follow this God, and I'm going to show gratitude in the way that I worship him. Are we faithfully living our life out in obedience and gratitude as we come to a deeper understanding of these promises. And then for our kids, I want to encourage you to talk to your parents this week and ask them some of their favorite promises that they have from God, from Scripture, and create some dialogue there between parent and child. Talk about some of the promises that God has made, some of the promises that are special to you that you can relate to your children this week. We're talking about a God of promises, and it's through those promises that Jacob says, you're no longer the God of my dad and my granddad. I'm going to make you my God as well. So I think we incite responses from our kids by highlighting and emphasizing the promises of God, his goodness, his protection, his provision, his omnipresence that stays with us and always works good in our life. I mean, what, what a great promise. If I'm a kid getting ready to step out and start making decisions on my own, to say, hey, if I submit to God, God always works things out for good for me. Why would, I not, why would I not sign up for that God? Why would I not enlist myself to be a follower of that God? If you're, if you're convincing me, and that's the key, is constantly showing our children that he's a God that works good in all situations. And what's the best way to show that? That when as, as a family we're going through bad situations to highlight how God is working good in those situations so that our kids learn from experience that he is a faithful God. He's been faithful to my mom. He's been faithful to my dad. And as I get ready to step out from underneath my parents, that's the type of God I want to follow. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the opportunity to come to your word today. We thank you for uh, the revelation that was given to Jacob many years ago. But Father, we're thankful far more for the revelation that's come here in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. We are thankful that while it would be cool to have a ladder that goes to and from earth to heaven, it's far more awesome to see Jesus as that true ladder, the one who has become the ultimate mediator between us and you. Father, we are thankful that Christ gives us full access, full confidence to be called your children, that we can be individuals that can believe and trust in your promises and that you're going to keep your promises, not because we're good boys and girls, not because we're good mommies and daddies, not because we're good husbands and wives, 
that you are going to keep your promises to us because of Jesus and because we are inheritors of everything good because of his work. God, I pray that we'd be faithful to embrace those truths as adults. We'd be faithful to pass on those truths to our children that you've given to us, that we would point them to see that you are a good God, a protector, and a provider. And God, I pray that we would present it in such a way that through the work of your Holy Spirit, our kids respond and believe in you and trust in you personally and not just because of their parents. Pray that you'd go with us this week. We thank you for uh, your angels that are going to go before us this week as well. Um, God, we're thankful that as we battle spiritual forces that we are not in that battle alone. Praise you and thank you for your good promises. It's in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.